The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. At the center of it is really a type of love, which is very interesting today, where you have a relationship between a young man and a young woman, and I'm talking in, in uh, Vita Nova, right? Yeah. Where they, they never touch, they never kiss, mm. they're never intimate, and yet the prose, the story is one of the greatest love stories of all time. So how does the how does he achieve that? That's one of the things. That's one of the things that, even after I write, I wrote that book and feel it now, I still feel that journey to understand this kind of love, this unrequited love. You know. Yeah. Yeah. When we're talking about this subject now and, and how I feel about it, it's almost as if all the generations where I came from have disappeared, and I. I'm kind of one with this great man and this great book that I, I attempted to do a modern translation of, you know. Mm. Never forget how powerful Beatrice is. Mm. Beatrice has her agency. Beatrice literally moves heaven and earth. Beatrice, who at least in two places reveals herself as a force that is, you know, I don't want to say second to God, but is remarkable in right. terms of what she can accomplish. That's author Anthony Valerio and Professor Ellen Nuremberg talking about Dante, his love for Beatrice, and the world a poet created. It's a world we're still inhabiting 700 years later. Dante and La Vida Nuova, today on the History of Literature. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. So glad you're here today. It's Valentine's Day as I'm recording this. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We've got two episodes, back-to-back episodes on love for you here at the History of Literature podcast. Maybe you thought last week's was the only one you were going to get. (laughs) Well, maybe you thought that. How would I know? I only hear from a fraction of you. In any case... Last week, we did have a good episode about love, the story of Anna Akhmadova and her trip to Paris, where she... Oh, excuse me. Someone seems to be at the door. Hello? Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. More gruel, please, sir. That's all I'm asking for. And guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Who's that, Oliver? Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Ah, I guess he ain't a bad sort when he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. I couldn't care less about meeting some old writer fellow, but I would like some more gruel. Won't you please throw a few shillings at Mr Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Oh, 
Oliver. You might ask, what is Oliver Twist doing in a History of Literature podcast episode other than helping me to sing for my supper? Well, it's appropriate. This week, Oliver Twist is nine years old, which is exactly the age where our poet narrator, Dante Alighieri, begins his story, the moment when he, at the age of nine, first saw his eternal beloved, Beatrice, who was also nine years old. They didn't speak then in that encounter, but he was stricken until nine years later he encountered her again. Nines are very important to Dante. He's very mathematical, very precise, and the numbers are tied to his sense of religion and his views of the cosmos. We'll get into that when we do our show on the Divine Comedy, I'm sure. But today, we have La Vita Nuova the book he wrote about 10 years before he started The Divine Comedy. It's a wonderful book, a true love story. And I hope you will all run out and read it if you haven't yet. We have today the author of a new translation, a modern retelling, and we have an expert on Italian literature to help us go through this unbelievably good story. It's a love story that will engage your brain and leave you breathless all at once. It had a dizzying effect on me when I first read it at age 18. I guess I was. It still captivates me today. There will be a link to Anthony Valerio's version of La Vita Nuova, also called Dante in Love, on the episode notes for the show. Before I leave Oliver too far in the dust, or too far from his gruel, spoonful of slop, let me finish what he started. You can throw a few shillings in my tin cup by going to patreon.com slash literature, where you can give a small monthly donation to help me buy my coffee, books, server space, and all the other costs associated with bringing you the history of literature. Or just buy me a beer or maybe a glass of wine. That would be perfect today. Imagine your old friend Jack has just walked into your favorite Osteria, and you are glad to see him, so you lift your glass and call to the Camiriere to bring your old friend a glass of the house red, Chianti Classico. Credit cards and PayPal accounts are accepted. That's patreon.com slash literature. Okay, let's get on to the email. Subject, a California fan. Dear Mr. Wilson, thank you so much for the time and care you put into your History of Literature podcast. I'm new to the wonderful world of podcasts, and I subscribe to many, but yours is my favorite. I listen to it when I'm doing tedious household tasks and when I'm engaging in my crafting hobbies. But I especially enjoy listening when I'm walking among the oaks and berry bushes along the banks of the American River near my home. It's like walking with a good friend who shares my interests, has many great stories to tell, and has a lovely, soothing voice. The miles melt away. The American River is where gold was first discovered in California about 170 years ago, which led to the gold rush and California statehood only a couple of years later. Along the banks where I walk, people of different ethnicities tried to pull a fortune out of the river, but very few succeeded. California, the mythology and the reality, has been an inspiration to many authors, and I wonder if this could be a subject for one of your future podcasts. But perhaps this subject would not have universal appeal. My favorite author by far is Jane Austen, and I enjoyed your podcast about Pride and Prejudice because I could see that you shared my love and delight. However, 
My favorite podcast of yours so far is The Runaway Poets. You tell that remarkable story with such feeling and insight. Your podcast is the only one I donate to so far because I really wanted to continue. I wish you, your family, and your colleagues health, happiness, and success. Sincerely, Catherine. I love this email. I love the image. You know, those are my favorite parts of these emails, where the listener tells me where he or she listens to the podcast. I have traveled all over the world, the Swedish post office, the steppes of Mongolia, the jungle, the desert, the commute into Manhattan, Australia, Italy, Iran, so many places I've been with my listeners. And now, the oak trees and berry bushes of California. I'm glad to go along for the ride. (laughs) In my little spot in your ears. And very thankful for your kind words and your support. Jane Austen and the Runaway Poets were both very popular episodes, right up there with the little episode that could, Madame Bovary. Today's a good one, too. My longtime friend, Professor Ellen Nuremberg, who inspired me from the moment I met her, and her husband, Anthony Valerio, whom I just met for the first time. They bring the love, people. This is the next time we talk about Dante. We will most likely be talking about hell. But Dante truly is a poet of love. A poet of love and literature and life. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear he's a favorite of mine. I first read this book in a history class, in fact. A class that opened my eyes from the first day when we got the syllabus. It was the second semester of Western Civilization covering the Middle Ages, roughly. And instead of reading a textbook, a course book, some overview with a summary written by some history scholar, with a lot of dates and, and names and events, explanations, we read Beowulf and Pilgrim's Progress and Piers the Plowman. And we learned about history that way. And on the syllabus, Martin Luther the rule of St. Benedict, and this modern masterpiece. Did I say modern masterpiece? <laughs> I meant to say modest masterpiece. It is kind of modern, although it's 700 years old. We'll talk about that with Anthony and Ellen. This modest masterpiece, La Vida Nuova, Dante's early poems about love and Beatrice and his prose narrative, stitching it all together and commenting on what inspired his poetry and what his poetry means and how it works. It's extraordinary. And luckily, we have a Virgil and a Beatrice to help guide us through. Anthony Valerio and Professor Ellen Nuremberg, coming up. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Ellen Nuremberg, Professor of Italian, the Hollis Professor of Romance Languages and Literature, and Dean of the Arts and Humanities at Wesleyan University. She is also a longtime friend and provided me with my first entree into the world of Italian language and literature many years ago, for which I am eternally grateful. Professor Nuremberg, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Jack, thank you so much for this invitation. I can't tell you how delightful and rewarding it is to be talking to you about this subject and uh, on this format and for this purpose. And we're joined by Anthony Valerio, author, editor, and teacher who has published several books of fiction and nonfiction, including John Dante's Inferno, the story of an Italian immigrant who wound up living at the Playboy Mansion for 26 years, as well as a biography of Anita Garibaldi, one of history's great revolutionary women. And his recent book, Dante and Love, is a retelling of the classic work La Vita Nuova. I've asked the two of them to join me tonight to discuss Dante and La Vita Nuova. Anthony Valerio, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here, and um, I'm really privileged to speak to you about one of the greatest artists of all time, so it's a real pleasure for me. Thank you. You're welcome. And let's start with Dante. So, Professor Ellen, I remember taking your class, which was Italian 101, and we were all busy asking each other, what is your name, and how many brothers and sisters do you have, and what color is your house, and things like that. And then one day you brought in an excerpt of Dante. And I remember you saying something like, okay, guys, you might not understand much or any of this, but I can't let you go through an entire year of Italian without reading some Dante. And that was my introduction. I think a a podcast was born on that very day. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm, I'm curious, when did you first read Dante and what were your first impressions? Oh, what a welcome question that is. Jack, as I sit in my study here in Connecticut, if I cast my gaze to the right, I have with me perhaps my most treasured material possession Mm. left to me by my father. And it is a marble bust of Dante. Wow. It sits on a marble topped pedestal and Uh, I should say that, like so many material objects, it carries with it a sort of talismanic power. And it was in the house where I grew up in Evanston, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And 
I think it's fair to say that I have known who Dante is since I have memory. Yeah. Um, it is, it, it was, it's a very beguiling thing. Imagine being a five-year-old, being a three-year-old and being not as tall as the pedestal and crawling underneath it to sit and have Dante sort of literally hover above you. Oh. Quite a weighty bust, by the way. If it had broken through that pedestal, I would not be here today telling you this story. <laughs> but and... being able to crawl under it and ask the question, who is this? Yeah. What is this bust? Who is this person? And have my father tell me the story of Dante. So it goes back a very, very long time. And in fact, there are those people who suggest that the presence of this bust in my life might be one of the reasons that I became an Italianist. Yeah. So was your father a, a scholar or a fan or what was he doing with the bust of Dante? Well, he was very much a fan. Mm -hmm. uh, he was not. Uh, my father was like many young men who were drafted into the um, infantry in World War Two uh, at the age of 19. Uh, he did not finish college as a result of his tour of duty. Mm. Um, and as a result, he really never stopped learning. So he was a um, uh, an amateur painter that was not the subject that he was majoring in when he was in college and when he was drafted, but uh, he continued to learn and continue to paint throughout his lifetime. Mm. And uh, he had a very deep, rich library, including a lot of secular humanism. Mm. And there is a very happy and harmonious convergence with Dante right there. Yeah. So your first question was, when did I first read Dante? And I think I first read Dante when I myself, like you, was a student of Italian. And I read Dante in a bilingual tradition, uh, tr translation, pardon, yeah. uh, to begin with. And afterward, uh, and it would be facing page, as yeah. a matter of fact. Yeah. Which is important because... Of course, Dante's Italian is not exactly the Italian that is appropriate for elementary Italian students. Right. But nevertheless, Dante himself is evergreen and perennially pleasing and is therefore an excellent uh, subject for uh, students of elementary to be introduced to. Yeah, I actually think the 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 facing page is the way to read it. I recommend that even for people who have no Italian at all, uh, that they read, you know, line by line and then read the translation as well. I, I think it's you you get a sense of the music of Dante, even if you're not familiar with Italian. Well, you know, not only that, Jack, but I would suggest that you uh, queue up on YouTube uh, Roberto Benigni reading the cantos as oh. he has yet. I believe he's read them all now, and he declaims them, so he does them from memory. Oh, wow. Wow. And that's really, if you want the musicality, if you want the music of Dante, nothing is really better better than that, because, of course, Benigni is also Tuscan, as Dante was, and you can probably hear a very good facsimile of um, late 13th and early 14th century Tuscan Italian 
if you listen to Roberto Benigni declaiming Dante. I feel like I just heard the sound of thousands of people clicking pause on this and they're running out to listen to Benigni before they come back to our podcast. <laughs> they will love it. They will love it. And it's a very, very appropriate pause to take. <laughs> Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarrita. Ai quanto a dir qual era e cosa dura, e sta selva selvaggia e aspra e forte che nel pensier rinnova la paura. Tante amara che poco è più morte, ma per trattar del ben che io vi trovai, dirò dell'altre cose chi vo scorte. Io non so ben ridir com'io ventrai, tant'era pien di sonno a quel punto. Okay, Anthony, how about you? When did you first read Dante? Well, I'm a practitioner of the art of writing, too, mm -hmm. and uh, of Italian descent, you know. I began my, my literary career as a professional, as an editor and a writer in my early 20s. And if I was uh, searching for my literary homeland in the United States, the 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 father the for, you know the father of American of Italian literature the inventor of the language was Dante so yeah I mean I had copies of the Divine Comedy and Vita Nova my entire life not only did I have them I carried them with me and uh, that was one of the reasons I attempted this kind of modern translation to get as close to a writer who in my estimation has really no peer. So I really feel not only my entire, similar to what Ellen is also saying, long standing, but very close to me, mm. very deep inside me as a practitioner. Yeah, that's very vivid. And it's, I, I found it almost uh, touching listening to you describe it, the way that you would be going back sort of to the source and looking for, a, I think you said a literary home Mm -hmm. were you tracing back your own ancestry and and i mean are you how many generations are you removed from italy uh, two two generations jack i do i want to add as far as uh the way that you describe being touched and also how you feel so close to that work yourself at the center of it is really a type of love which is very interesting today where you have a relationship between a young man and a young woman, and I'm talking in, in uh, Vita Nova, right? Yeah. Where they, they never touch, they never kiss, mm. they're never intimate, and yet the prose, the story is one of the greatest love stories of all time. So how, is the, how does he achieve that? That's, yeah. one of the things, that's one of the things that even after I write, I wrote that book and feel it now, I still feel that journey to understand this kind of love, this unrequited love, you know? Yeah, yeah. When we're talking about this subject now and, and how I feel about it, it's almost as if all the generations where I came from have disappeared and I, I'm kind of one with this great man and this great book that I, I attempted to do a modern translation of, you know? Mm. Yeah. Let's save that for a minute here because I want to kind of give the context for the book. Okay. Specifically, sort of the world that Dante was writing in, because I kind of go back and forth between 
I'm just astonished at how old it is, how long ago it is that it's when I look at it on the timeline, you can almost uh, if you put Dante on one end and us on the other, Shakespeare is almost in the middle, you know, that he's he's almost as as old to Shakespeare as Shakespeare is to us. And yet there's something very fresh about Dante's world. And I, I don't know if if that's the impression you have as well. And if that's because uh, we're similar to the Florence of the 1300s and the, the late 13th century and the beginning of the 14th century, or if it's Dante's sensibility, or what do you think, uh, what do you attribute Dante's, that connection that we feel with Dante even today? I, I'm sure it's his, his longevity, you know, tw- he wrote A New Life, Vita Nova, around 1290, in the 1290s, so it's many, many centuries ago. And yet, for me, it is so modern, it's so fresh. For example, he what he did in one and to rather short you know rather brief book but what he did was he combined prose and poetry so mm. if you have students of you know writing out there they say well you know can i mix genres for example in the same project well dante did that in 1290 right right he, and and also also i find the prose and as ellen recommended you know listen to it I would also recommend reading the whole story in any language you're comfortable with and then reading it all in Italian and going back and forth because it will become part of you, you know. Yeah. But I find him, I found him, you know, attempting to understand him as a practitioner, as another writer, as a, as a, as a professional book editor, in order, to, in order to get to understand him. In other words, as if he were beside me as if he were living today yeah the the bridge of the years just falls away when you read the prose is so fresh and new i'm sure i'm sure alan can talk about you know his one of the reasons it's lasted and another reason it's lasted jack is the nature of the love story Mm. it's a it's a love story that is almost difficult it's almost impossible to completely get your head around yeah because you're you're saying that because there were so few uh, actual interactions between Dante and Beatrice, but uh, well, maybe I need to to back up a little bit and just describe the book. So, um, okay. or have you described the book? So basically, most people will be familiar, I think, at least have some familiarity with the Divine Comedy, which Dante wrote uh, between 1308 and 1320. Years before that, he had written poems. And then in 1295, he came out with a book, uh, Vita Nuova, which is basically, I think there are about 20 poems or so in the book. But in between the poems, he writes this prose narrative that talks about the inspiration for the poems and what he was thinking, what he was trying to do. And he kind of describes some of the poems and he gives some of the characteristics of the poems. And then he... but. But the subject of the poem, the great subject of the poem, uh, of all the poems, as well as the prose in between, is his love for this woman he first saw when he was a child and she was a child, and he just fell head over heels. He lost himself in love. It's the so-called real story of Dante and Beatrice, and they meet when they're nine years old, and it's narrated by him. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the lover, she's the beloved, 
What's remarkable about remarkable about it is the level of passion coming from him directed to a young person and then a you know and then actually a married woman who actually who dies during the narrative and had had died actually before he wrote it and you get that when you read it and it's the so-called real story of those two now your readers of of the divine comedy would recognize if they get to paradise that beatrice is waiting for him in paradise right she's like his guide right yeah and he first introduced him in another work when he was a young man so it's a full circle a full cycle of of uh, dante's how could i say his great passion and his great art and his great love for a woman who he really invented if you will yeah and Ellen, what, where did this fit in terms of literature of the era? Was this completely different? Was it growing out of a, a movement or a tradition? Or was Dante, was he all alone? Was he part of a circle? Or what was happening at this time? Wow, those are great questions. And that's why you asked them. Um, I wanted to go back for a moment and talk about the currency of Dante. And just to say the following thing, I'm going to be teaching a course in 2018-2019 here at Wesleyan with the title Coming Out slash Coming of Age, Narratives of Becoming in uh, Italian Culture or Italian... I forget forget exactly what the subtitle is, but the reason that I bring that up is to underscore the vibrancy, the vividness, the aliveness of this text La Vita Nova and to group it with a feeling that attends frequently adolescence, but not only adolescence, mm. adolescence being a time of becoming. The thing that is so interesting to me about La Vita Nova is its innovative approach to its own identity or life as a text that I know of, this is the beginning of literary criticism. Oh, this is, da- this is right. Dante telling you how to read his poems. Right. He gives you poems and then he gives you glosses of his poems. Yeah. And um, with my colleague here at Wesleyan and also Anthony, we agree that you can sum up La Vita Nova you could probably sum it up in many ways, but one of the ways that you can sum it up is this. Dante diventa scrittore. Mm. Dante becomes a writer. And so the, the coming out, as it were, the coming of age, are you coming out of what? You're coming uh, out of oblivion. You're coming out of the chaos to form language, to form a genre, to form more than one genre to embrace different genre, to talk about those different genre, and to talk about embracing those different genre. There are so many things going on in this text that it strikes me as still quite avant-garde, actually. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I wanted to say about the uh, how alive the language of this text is, the subject matter of this text. I also wanted to point out that Yes, there was a human being named Beatrice Portinari. Um, But there is also the way that the 
Beatrice, the Beatitudine that inhabits this sculpted, transformed, imagined, recrafted figure that is Beatrice is both the earthly Beatrice and the Beatrice of the Aldila, of the Mm. beyond. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not accidentally after she dies, Anthony mentioned that she she dies already by the time that Dante has composed uh, La Vita Nova, but where he, he finds her literally midway in the Divine Comedy. Well, actually slightly more than midway. He encounters her in Earthly Paradise, which is the end of Purgatorio. Mm-hmm. She's obviously between and among all of these things, earthly, otherworldly. She is the beloved. She is breath and body, but she is also the beatific form of love that is meant to inhabit all creatures. And I wanted to see, you asked where he, where this idea came from. And I wanted to stop for a moment and reflect on something that the Dante scholar Teodolinda Barolini from Columbia University was observing, which is that there is a rich iconographic tradition of, well, at least the comedy, which is the last judgment. Um, and there are um, fresco cycles in various places in Italy. Um, and I heard Professor Barlini talk about the fresco cycle in the Scrovegni Chapel in Padova, which people who might be listening might really enjoy going to see. That is an amazing, amazing testament to late 13th century uh, painting, but also richly depicts what we what what would be the um, status quo of what the Catholic Church, which was the only church at that, that was Christianity at that time, was Catholicism uh, before the Reformation, what it was saying about, you know, this world and the other world, this mm-hmm. life and the next one, and the judgment that comes in between. And so while it seems as though, at least in the comedy, that Dante is he's, he's, he's wrestling these things out of the darkness, they've never been seen before. Well, they've never been perhaps discursively created in poetry before, but there does exist a tradition in painting and iconographic representation that, that um, at least is contemporaneous of Dante, if not antedating him. Mm. But he seems like... I mean, I get the impression when I'm reading it, and I'm just starting to kind of realize what a uh, what a project this was for him, and and how how creative he was. I, part of me, when I first started reading it, I thought, okay, here's a guy who wrote a lot of poems, and then he thought people don't get my poems, or I need to explain more. And I enjoyed the story and reading kind of the backstory, but. You know, the more I the more I sort of have gone through the text, the more I realize that he's kind of up to more than just that, that he's really he's he's justifying poetry. But he's also he seems to be putting himself at the center and saying, my love for Beatrice is going to be uh, as interesting as anything that you will read about. And, And me talking about myself as a poet and what inspired me to write these poems is going to give this a whole different dimension than it would be if I just printed, you know, 20 poems in a collection. Is that, am I getting towards something there? I'm sort of wrestling with my thoughts. It's such a a complicated text. 
Well, uh, I'll say just a couple of things and then I'll turn it over to, to Anthony, who has inhabited this text in ways that, that I have not. I'd be very interested to hear what he would say about that. This is the time of the invention of the I want to say of the individual, but certainly of the author mm. that authors, identifiable authors, things that are not choral necessarily are coming into being also just slightly after uh, Dante, we will have Boccaccio and then just slightly after Boccaccio, we'll have Petrarch who was like Dante, not bashful to inhabit that singularity, that individual that is an author. Now I will say that Dante was <laughs> Dante. I self identifies his own sin for which he will pay, pay penance uh, and be penitent in purgatory. And that is pride. Mm. Uh, he will absolutely spend his time on the plateau, on the, um, on the terrace of the prideful in purgatory as he climbs Mount Purgatory. He will see those pearly gates once again when he's not um, escorted, but not before he pays uh, pays the price of time uh, for being prideful. His pride at being a poet, right? His pride at, at being, uh, what do we, it's, it's not so odd for us now, you know, with um, overweening ego that we have in the, in the, the centuries that have followed, certainly no less so in the 21st century, but you know, it's not seeming to be that self-possessed that certain of your own genius, mm. that entitled to have a trip into the into the great beyond, into the afterworld, you know, to see yeah. how things are going to be in this non-earthly place. I mean, that is the that's reserved for the otherworldly, for the saints, for the angels, for God, you know. Right. Do we trust Dante and his account? Anthony, did you, as you were working your way through this, did you, I'll give you an example. So he's describing his love for Beatrice, and it's it's clear that he wants to place his ability to love or, or his love for her on this kind of rarefied plane. And then he describes how he's looking at her, I think, in church one day, and, and people are perhaps noticing how he's looking at her. And so to disguise that he was looking at her, he he invents this screen, this idea of a love screen, where he's going to pretend that he was looking at someone else and use that to kind of channel his emotions. And, and part of me really uh, liked this idea, and part of me thought, well, maybe this is Dante who's writing at a certain point in his adult life, and he's he's idealizing his love for Beatrice— but then he also has to explain to readers who maybe knew his life story why he got married, why he at one point was believed to love someone else. And I kind of wondered if he was committed to his idea of himself as a, as a lover and if he invented some of this in order to explain away parts of his own autobiography that maybe didn't fit. Jack, those perceptions are uh, very, very interesting just to go back to your, an earlier, you know, an early, an early, earlier question to Alan about what was going on at the time, and then I'll expound, you know, get, get to your 
point. Okay. There was love poetry at the time, even before Dante. The troubadours wrote love stories um, that he knew very well. Now, what he did, though, was that the nature of the subject matter of the love story, I, I, I don't know. I didn't read all of the troubadour poetry, but it was very, the, the nature of his subject matter, as you explain it now, about in church for a moment, and I'll talk about that, was absolutely new and fresh. And it was, I would say, the screen lady, and then there's another screen lady, there's a screen lady number two, and also the way he describes a dream in which Beatrice eats his heart. And, you know, Ellen and I kind of joke a bit, but the character in Vita Nova is somewhat of a scoundrel. Yeah, there are moments that Dante writes which I've classified as pornographic almost. Mm. So he's so he's he's not this angelic, lovely boy. Okay, he he is. I mean, he uses women in yeah. the video oh, twice, and I think I mean it's remarkable to me. And by the way, your re, your listeners who might be interested in how. And, you know, getting close to Dante and, and, and Beatrice is uh, Ellen and I visited the, the small chapel. If you go to Florence, you could go and sit in that chapel where they were, mm. where Dante is in a rear pew and she's up front. And the love for her is so overwhelming to him that he cannot look at her directly. Yeah. That's why he had to have a screen lady. He, she's to the mere sight of her overwhelms him he faints he goes into a swoon i mean it's so over the top in a way okay and that's why he needed a screen lady yeah so merges really is the grand grandiosity of his love using these other women okay so that i would say that attracted me this this kind of a rogue this young man who um is 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 really is really not very moral actually and it's very attractive yeah so when you uh said about if i read the description right of your book um it's a modern retelling is what your publisher is calling right. it right? right so yeah what needed the modernization was it the the language or did you change any of the situations or how did you go about turning this story into something more modern Great question, Jack. Uh, I'm I'm a practitioner, a writer, but through mainly through Ellen and Ellen herself, you know, getting to know these great scholars. Actually, I was encouraged to do it by a famous dentist mm. who knew my work. Mm-hmm. I I began to look at it in a way that I thought it was possible to do, and also to make an attempt. What I tried to do was to make the prose accessible because the translations i was told of vita nova were not very good mm-hmm. so i tried to make it i tried to i tried to do a translation if you will of prose that's very current and yet faithful to the original mm-hmm. it's very very difficult and i'm you know i i, I bowed down and you know it was a very audacious thing for me to do now the second part of all that is I approached it as a book editor and trying to understand 
how Dante achieved his effects. Mm. It's kind of a double, what I did was kind of a double, two voices. It's the, the voice of Dante. It's also the voice of the narrator as book editor and try to understand what he did. Yeah. So it's both, those, those are combined. And so far, scholars like that. Also, to add something I did along those lines, were, I, I made it interactive. That is, the reader, can, like if I describe the dream in which Beatrice eats his heart, and then I have, there's a line with uh, the reader can, what's my interpretation of the dream? And you could send it in and I, and I post it on my website. Oh, right. So in other words, get closer to Dante that way. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was an attempt to really, as a practitioner, I think to understand him in the lang- in, in, understand him somewhat along my in my terms also, you know. Yeah. Well, here's here's what I was thinking, and I've I've read the introduction to the book, and I have the book on order. Uh, I can't wait to read it. Here's what I was thinking when I heard that you made it more modern. Is I was thinking if I were trying to make this more modern. I would change the genders. You know, it sounds like you were being more faithful to Dante than that. But yeah. I would think about, oh, what if you had it as the woman who was, you know, in pursuit and the man, you know, <laughs> or at least give Beatrice a little more agency. We see so much about Dante in love with her that we kind of miss out on her side of the story. But then I thought, you know, you could also just stick to Dante and focus on this brooding lovesick mm. poet who's obsessed mm. with his love and that feels very right. modern as well so right it sounds like that was that was enough that you felt like that the story of dante being this obsessive sometimes roguish character is a a character that would hold interest for us if it was a 21st century narrator as well uh, uh, jack your evolution on the think on that back and on the way you would discussing it now is exactly exactly um on target it's a kind of it's a project that really like the nature of the love is really eternal i mean we'll never really say anything or write anything about it that will close it out you know it's so open-ended i want to just you another uh, comment you made about what dante hoped to do with this i'm going to read a little line a couple of lines from the book about how it continues on goes like this just towards the end i can speak of her in a more worthy manner toward which i'm striving as hard as i possibly can which she well knows if it should please the one through whom all things live that i should live a few more years i hope to write of her that which no man has ever written of a woman Uh. that's what he was trying to do so at the end, he concludes that all that he that he had written before still does not measure up to writing about her in a way that he would one day hope to. And then, of course, later on, by the way, between Vita Nuova, this book we're talking about today, and the Inferno, Dante was exiled from Florence. Uh, so he right. wrote he wrote the Inferno. He wrote the divine comedy, if you will, on the road, imagine. Yeah. On the road with no central heating, with no comfortable lodging, all of the references in that, in that book 
the classic was it was in his his memory really so it's really it's, it's really an incredible story ellen will have more to say about that listening to you anthony i'm also wondering how much of a kernel exists of the divine comedy of the comedy rather not everyone agrees that it should be called divine that was a much later addition and with reference to it to the poem uh how much of the kernel existed when he began La Vita Nova? Because, Jack, to get back to your idea about, you know, whether or not the gender should be transposed, never forget how powerful Beatrice is. Mm. Beatrice has her agency. Beatrice literally moves heaven and earth. She's not God, but she finds Virgil. She is she intercedes on behalf of Dante the poet lost in the dark wood of sin in the middle of his life. Mm. And she sends a messenger and Dante finds him this messenger. And this messenger takes him through the journey of the underworld through all of purgatory that that enlightened pagan is entitled to show to Dante. After which we have Beatrice, who at least in two places in the three canticles of the poem reveals herself as a force that is, you know, I don't want to say second to God, but is remarkable in right. terms of what she can accomplish. Mm. And so, you know, frequently my my students, if there is Beatrice, la beatitudine, there is also the competing figure of fortune, la fortuna. And as you know, Jack, as a, as a student of Italian, all nouns are gendered in Romance languages, and Italian is not exempt from this. And so it's Machiavelli who figures fortune as a woman in the prince, La Fortuna, and says to the prince, you've got to grab her by the hair and you've got to throw her down. It's not so much a woman that Machiavelli is saying to a, an actual prince that that's supposed to happen. It's all a metaphorical rendering. And yes, there, again, there does exist this figure, this historical figure, Beatrice, but never forget that she is a personification mm. and she is gendered and it is appropriate that she be gender female if in fact she is supposed to be beatification, if she is supposed to represent something that is otherworldly. Right. And so, you know, my students, I my students who are not native romance language speakers find I find a stumbling block in the gendering of language and you cannot get beyond it. That is to say it exists as a thing in Romance languages in a way that it does not in English that has a neuter. Mm. So, or, and then uh, I suppose I could say as a parenthesis, the neuter that is not the universal male neuter. I, I, I want to be uh, clear about that, right. that those of us who are attentive to language would, as you have in in your contemplation here of of the case, you know, could it be possible? It's it'd be a wonderful exercise. It'd be a wonderful exercise 
that I would invite any of your listeners or any students to engage in. But there is a reason why Beatrice is a woman, and it has to do with the gendering of language. Hmm. Well, let me tell you one of my favorite parts of La Vida Nuova. And it's it strikes me as a very, uh, I, I felt very close to Dante when I kind of saw what he was up to. But I think it also gets at some of this, what you're talking about, about the way we should understand Beatrice. So it's the point where Dante describes Beatrice after her father has passed away. And the way he describes it is that he sees her friends who were had just left Beatrice and they they're so moved by how much compassion she had shown. And the way that they're moved kind of moves Dante. And it it really made me think, you know, this is not a poet who's talking about his own love for Beatrice, and he's describing a, a poet's love in the sense of, uh, I can use these elaborate metaphors to describe how her hair is spun like fine gold or or anything like that. But he's really engaging with her and kind of the depth of her soul. And it seems mm-hmm. like he's he's basically saying, you know, this is like the reason I am so in love with her is she is a superior being. She's a she's a, a better person than I am. She's deeper than I am. She's she's someone that I can just uh admire and um I guess just be inspired by. Uh if I may I, I uh, appreciate you calling up that image because I was looking for it in the book. I didn't exactly find it about when her father dies. Uh, I, rem- I recall writing, though, that Dante's description of the death of her father is really the first formal obituary ever written. Mm. It's an actual obituary like we read in the newspaper. Number one. Number two, uh, men and women grieved separately. So he's outside the house and he's looking at her again. It's the indirectness of it all. He can't even go in and, you know, say, you know, tell her, you know, you have my condolences. He has to see her grieving through other women who are grieving there. And also a major character that he creates is love, amour. It becomes a person and that was very very challenging to me to create a character like that and he's a real character and, and love is grieving over her father so it's it's another example somewhat in the line of unable to to uh, look at her in church he, again even after her father dies he's unable to the only way he knows her is through other women indirectly so you're exactly right it's a very powerful idea yeah. It's a very, very powerful idea, and it's consistent with with what he had done before. Just one, one, uh, another, just comment about the colonel that uh, that Ellen uh, mentioned about maybe there was a colonel in this er- earlier work that appears in his later work. I would recommend to your listeners to read A New Life and then to read the comedy, which was the title Dante put on it, not Divine Comedy, and see how it all comes together where. There's, Be- there's Beatrice at nine years old, and then there's Beatrice at the end of the comedy in Paradise. And Ellen was, t- you know, touching on it where what Paradise was for Dante was able to see the face of God 
And so Beatrice was able to see the face of God. So in that way, about gender, Jack, what Ellen was touching on, it's, it's yes, it's male, female, but it's also an idea. Hmm. It's an idea, it's a philosophy. And think of this, the male, female gender line was never consummated, not even a dialogue between them. Yeah. It's an interesting variation of the gender idea. I'd like to say something here, which is, if I'm not mistaken, and Anthony can circle back to fill this in, but if Beatrice is a personification, amor, love, is also personification. And it's not infrequent in the sonnet form. If not exactly in 1295, it will become a convention that the sonnet is a message. It's to be sent to the beloved. And sometimes... In the sonnet form, the, the poet will, in the last rhyming couplet, depending on the kind of sonnet form that you are adopting, there are a couple of there are a couple of forms here. And for your listeners, uh, I would invite them to go to check out the generic conventions of the sonnet, just to be refreshed as to what they understand about it. But that the the poem would be addressed. It would say something like, "Go poem." to the person that I'm speaking to and give them this message. Mm. So I, I wanted to say that, but um, I mentioned uh, that it might be fun for your listeners to dial up on YouTube, Roberto Benigni, but it also might be if they, if they are ever in Italy or if they simply want to again, dial it up virtually to look up um, several of the mosaic cycles in Ravenna where Dante is buried. He was, as Anthony pointed out, he was exiled from Florence mm. uh, for, for barratry, which was political corruption. Um, it was a convenient um, accusation. Uh, there's a mausoleum, and that's right within the center of town. But there are a couple of superb examples of um, medieval mosaics. But the one that I would direct your listeners to is Santa Polinaire in Classe. And Classe is a, a little fraction of Ravenna that's slightly outside of town. It's not very easy to get to, but it's worth it because there you will see the, I believe the figure is called the Cristo Pantocrator, which is the all-loving Christ. This mm. is not the Baroque Christ of the Passion. This is the Christ that more or less is going to be what we would call the medieval Christ, who is all-loving, mm -hmm. Pentocrator. And it's a different iconographic representation of celestial or religious love. Poets are trying to codify different forms of love, and Dante is also trying to do that. And even though this is... Uh, you know, Dante always has his cake and eats it too, really. And he has this love story. It's a love story that is worthy of all Valentine's days. Uh, but behind it is a greater love. And it's about that compassion that you were talking about. It's about the creation of empathy. It's about the recognition of bereavement and loss and the sense that 
that's love too, that Mm. love is also loss. And the story of Levita Nova is remarkable for the way that it is even now, I think, so welcoming of readers who want to find out about empathy and compassion. And there's no better time to return to empathy, compassion, and compassion than now, I feel. Mm. Right. I don't remember him making any religious references other than the trips to church in La Vida Nuova. But as you're describing it, I realize, of course, underlying all of this is a kind of uh, Christianity or, you know, the themes of Christianity, especially the themes of love and compassion, it seems to deepen his description of his love for Beatrice in a way, even if it's not overtly referenced, or at least uh, not not that I can recall. But it, it, it does feel like he's talking about not just what a great 18-year-old, how in love he was, the way we might think of a brooding rock star type, but he seems to be saying, this is what life can be if you open yourself up to have the kind of love that, you know, we know from uh, Christ's teachings or from the, you know, his other understandings of the New Testament probably helped to fuel that feeling that he had. That's exactly right. He writes specifically about Beatrice, who at the time of her death was married, actually. And he was also married when he was writing the Mm. Anu. Mm -hmm. She's in heaven. She's with God. And there are, uh, I I, I didn't find them now, but they're in the book also, and they're in part of his book, where he, he actually directs words toward the angels and what the angels are saying and what God is saying and what and so there is a dialogue a direct connection between his earthbound self and the celestial hmm. it's definitely very real and powerful so it does transcend any lovesick teenager you know? yeah and you had such an interesting quote in the introduction that I hadn't encountered before which is that Dante had said that he wanted to use the common language rather than Latin, Mm. at least in part because so that women could have an easier access to the work. That's what he said. He said that himself. Yeah. He said that he was writing it. He wrote this so that, what was was the quote? Housewives, uh, housewives, not, not, uh, women, uh, uh, women of, uh, how could I say, the learned class or the wealthy class, they knew Latin. Books were written in Latin. Yeah. So he wrote it in, in, in the vernacular, and he talks about it in A New Life. He talks about what writing in the vernacular vernacular is, that writers about who write about love, capital L, write in the vernacular. So he was making... The one of the ways he made so un, quote unquote the language was making it accessible to women. And do you think that was because he wanted you know to double his readership, or because he wanted specifically to say, women, you know, here this is what it's like for men to be in love. He was a very ambitious young writer. I think what Ellen had mentioned about coming of age, where it's in the process of writing this book, he discovered he was more of a poet than a prose writer. Mm-hmm. That's obvious in the book, by the way. The prose <laughs> becomes less and less, and the poetry becomes more and more. 
Yeah. He was a poet. He discovered that. He was very ambitious. Yeah, you know, his entire career, we're talking about him being banished from Florence. He never saw, what they say, he never saw his wife again. He was married. There are stories where he saw his son, his children again. Hmm. And there was a dream, a dream he supposedly had that he told his son where to find the manuscript. Because, you know, he 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 didn't have a publisher. He didn't have an agent. He didn't have... He had a patron. He did have a patron. He found a patron when he was exiled, correct. Yeah. Uh, well, we're getting toward the end of our time here. I have a couple more questions. I have one question, yeah. and then I have a surprise bonus question. Okay. Uh, the question I have is, when I go to Florence, I feel... Especially when I'm, you know, in the when I'm there at night and and the the tourist crowds have have melted away, and I almost feel like I could encounter Dante just around the corner, like that he's he's so fresh and vivid to me that it feels like that Florence could be where he's still living even today. Is mm-hmm. that do you feel that way, or do you feel like he's uh, sort of a part of history? Okay, I want to say two things. Well, I want to say several things. First of all, run, do not walk, run to Piazza Santa Croce and look at Dante in Piazza Santa Croce outside of the church. And the ghost of Dante might be there. However, (laughs) at the same time, every year, they say, the Florentines ask the citizens of Ravenna to return Dante's bones. And they refuse. They refuse because they say, Dante wasn't good enough for you in life. Why (laughs) should you have him in death? And so he stays, as I understand it, interred in the crypt in in the mausoleum in Ravenna. But I will say that for you and for your listeners, as you wander around Florence or also Siena, Siena very clearly also, cast your eyes up, I want to say, about 12 feet. And frequently, you will find citations, mm. mostly mostly from the comedy, yeah. that mark, that actually map the comedy for people as you walk around Florence. Oh. So that's there's a there's sort of a lapidary understanding of that. And then the second thing is that most Italians, because, you know, Dante continues to be required reading mm-hmm. for high school students, they can cite Dante at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And so it lives in the way that proverbs do, in the way that in that way that language that is codified by poetry and proverb uh, lives. It's mm-hmm. there, it's not there, it evanesces. But if you just look up, usually about 12 feet in the air at some intersections in Florence, you will see written in stone uh, citations from the divine, from the comedy. Jack, I'd like to add, I'm going to add, I'd like to add to what Ellen is saying about, you know, right when you're in Florence to run to two places. One I mentioned earlier is their chapel, and it's listed as the chapel uh, that Dante and Beatrice, you know, attended where he used the screen lady. So it's a small, beautiful chapel, and you could just sit there and feel them as if they're still there. And the second place is to go to any one of the bridges and stand at the head of a bridge. Dante, young Dante used to stand at the head of a bridge and wait for Beatrice to pass 
on her evening stroll. And that was the first time when she was strolling with two, uh, between two women. It's all described in the, in the book. Hmm. She's strolling between two women and all she does is just turn her gaze toward him. Yeah. And so if you go and stand there, that's where he stood. You'll only, you'll not only be in his shoes, but you'll, you'll see Beatrice making her way down. By the way, it's after he saw her that first time that he went home and had that dream where she ate his heart mm-hmm. after yeah. that. Right. So, so he is everywhere there, you know? Oh, and I, I would recommend to people that they do as I did uh, and read Levita Nuova first. And I, I had the experience that you guys have described of you get to the point in the comedy where she appears and just knowing of his love for her and, and his you know, description of his, of his youthful experiences with her. And then seeing her as he's coming out of hell and he's making his way toward paradise. And then when she appears, it's like a, uh, I, I was going to say religious experience, I guess. It, but I mean, I, w- I was just floored. I felt like weeping when I saw her. I felt so relieved yeah. and gratified and just, and it also, then it was kicked in that he had kind of transformed his love for her into this poetry and he had placed her within this fantastic uh, magisterial work of poetry, and it it really is. It's it's worth getting to know Dante and Beatrice before I think you read the comedy. I agree. It's a perfect description. I love the description you made. It's that she lives on in his 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 poetry. She is his poetry. Yeah, that's exactly right. By the way, when he when she's in paradise and he's making his way up there, she's angry with him too. Because in, 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 in the new life, he's, he's, he starts to speak about another woman he, he, he likes. Mm. And he arouses her jealousy. It's another way he kind of humanizes her. Yeah. It's, it's quite amusing. But uh, that's a perfect way, Jack, that you, you know, concluding your, your wonderful uh, podcast here mm. and describing how she really is one with his poetry. You're exactly right. Oh, okay, let me ask the surprise bonus question. And I am, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a tough one. Mm. I think, uh, I think you guys are not going to like this question, but I'm going to ask oh, it anyway. Looking forward. <laughs> okay. On a trip to the medieval city of Bologna, you are visited by a saint who actually turns out to be a demon in disguise. The demon says, this year I'm asking you to give up one of three things for Lent, except I'm actually going to force you to give up one of them, and Lent is going to be for the rest of your life. So he's giving you three things. You have to pick one of them that you're willing to give up out of the three. Here Mm -hmm. are your choices. Okay. Dante, Mm -hmm. Italian cinema, Mm -hmm. or Italian food. That's which, easy for me. Which do you give up? Only one? You have to give uh, up one of those three. Dante, Italian food or Italian cinema? Yeah. I would get up I I would give up Italian cinema. <laughs> <laughs> That's an easy one for me. <laughs> okay. Ellen, how about you? Boy, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great one. I'm not sure I can do with 
I can do without any of those. I know. Big one. You know something? I'm going to say that I'm going to do without the food. I don't think I can do without the cinema or you, without Dante. But you teach, if you teach cinema, you'd be out of a job. If yeah. you, <laughs> you know, Jack, I want to just say last night we went to a concert and we heard uh, Mozart's uh, clarinet concerto. Hmm. And now, when Ellen and I met, she said, if you were going to a desert island, what music would you take? Yeah. And I said, and I, I didn't, it didn't take me long. I said, well, it's either Thelonious Monk or Mozart. And just to hear, and just to, you know, if I were to go, if you would ask me if I to, you know, been a writer a long time, if I were going to a desert island, I could only take one writer, one book, I would take Dante. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Al? Would you, what book would, would what writer would you take? Wow, that's also really hard. It's either got to be, I don't know, Dante or the Bible. I mean, they're they're evergreen. They consistently deliver level after level of interpretation, of story, of history, of song, of, of so many things that you want something that is going to require if you're going to be on a desert island and you're going to have one text or one recording you want it to be layered and nuanced and to have riches to plumb for the years and years that you are cast away on a desert island jack what would you what would you give up of those three things oh I I couldn't really decide. That's why I I put all no, three. No, you have to decide. I've, Sorry, <laughs> you have to decide. We had to decide. You have to decide. We decided. Now you have to decide. I think I would probably give up the cinema as well. Yeah. Although I I also kind of thought I could maybe give up the food and really immerse myself in other kinds of cuisine. I don't have a uh, it, for me. Italian food is something I enjoy, but I'm guessing that for you, Anthony, it would be something that's more in your DNA, and and it doesn't have for me nostalgia. For example, it's... it would be hard. It would be harder for Ellen to give up pasta than me. <laughs> <laughs> it would. Too true. Too true. <laughs> but it, I think we can all agree that giving up any of those three things would make life uh, much more impoverished. Oh, we, we, we all three of us keep Dante in our lives, right? I think so. Yeah, none yeah. of us chose Dante. Right. Uh, okay, well, I feel like we could talk about this for another hour without any sort of difficulty, and maybe we can extend our conversation and find another aspect of Dante or Italian literature or culture to to talk about next time. Anthony Valerio and Professor Ellen Nirenberg, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Jack. Thank you for having me. Jack, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful way to to spend an hour in anticipation of Valentine's Day. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? I feel overwhelmed with the beauty and joy and friendship 
of that conversation. My thanks to Ellen and Anthony for joining me and for their hour of insights. I encourage you all to go find Anthony's book, Dante in Love, which is your entree into a magical paradise or a a pre-paradise, as the case may be. Dante will be there waiting for you. How did you do, people? Could you have given up Italian food in favor of Dante? Send me an email or tweet at me or do whatever you'd like. I will be waiting here, standing on my little bridge, watching you pass by, hoping that you will turn your face to me and hoping against hope that I will not be snubbed. (laughs) I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.